Good evening and welcome again. We're glad that you're here tonight. We're going to be looking at 1 Kings chapter 12, verses 25 through 33 in our study tonight. The theme of our study is going to be the radical innovations of King Jeroboam. And we'll be looking at these verses in just a moment. I do want to express appreciation to each of you for your presence tonight. We're always glad to have visitors with us. As always, we invite you to come back and be with us. We're very grateful for the number of visitors that we have from week to week. And we've had a number of folks that have come and identified with us here. It might be the case that you're looking for a church home and we'd love to have you call Olive Branch your home. Look with me, if you would, at 1 Kings chapter 12 tonight. I want to just very quickly give you a bit, just a very quick background of what we're going to be talking about. And I guess maybe before starting, I want to just share with you the fact that I've got some things that I'd like to read to you tonight in connection with our lesson. And I hope that the things that I have to read are not too tedious, but I think it's really important to share this information with you because it helps to maybe put into perspective some of the things that are going on, not just in the world, but also in the church. And so tonight as we think about our lesson, the radical innovations of King Jeroboam, I want to suggest that there is a lot of modern day application here. And there's no way that I could really cover all the material that I'd like to cover in this one lesson. But I do want to share with you some things that relate to what is recorded for us in chapter 12. By way of background, after the death of King Solomon, his son Rehoboam assumed the throne. And there was a division that occurred between the northern tribes and the southern tribes. The southern tribe, of course, being Judah. And Rehoboam would ultimately become the king of the southern kingdom. And it would be through the southern kingdom that the messianic line would come to fruition. The northern kingdom would ultimately be swept away into Assyrian captivity in about 722-721 B.C. Jeroboam was to be the king over the northern kingdom. And so in chapter 12, we have a record of him being placed as king over all Israel, that is, over the northern kingdom. A prophet in the long ago, Ahijah, had told him that God would give him ten tribes. Now Jeroboam had been a servant of Solomon. And the text tells us in chapter 11 at verse 28 that Jeroboam was a mighty man of valor. And Solomon, seeing that the young man was industrious, made him the officer over all the labor force of the house of Joseph. So Jeroboam obviously was quite a man. And so in chapter 12, we have Jeroboam being named or identified as the king over all Israel in verse 20. What I want you to see is drop down and look at verse 25. We're talking about the radical innovations of King Jeroboam. I mentioned a moment ago that there was a conflict between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. Now, 
I want to begin by talking about the calculated motives of Jeroboam. I mentioned a moment ago that the prophet had announced to Jeroboam that God would give him ten tribes and there would be ultimate blessings upon the head of Jeroboam. And God wanted Jeroboam to honor his word. Down in verse 38, God had said, Then it shall be, if you will heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, and do what is right in my sight, to keep my commandments, as my servant David did, then I will be with you and build you an enduring house, as I built for David, and will give Israel to you. Unfortunately, though, the text tells us in verse 40 that Solomon sought to kill Jeroboam. But Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, and so there was a bounty placed on the head of Jeroboam. Now, we think about the prophecy, but then note, if you would, the position of Jeroboam. I mentioned a moment ago that he was named king over Israel, his elevation. And then he sought to fortify himself, down in verse 25 of chapter 12. He built two capital cities, the first in Shechem, the other in Penuel. And the text tells us that Jeroboam built these in the mountains of Ephraim. Some would say that he built these capital cities east of the Jordan in the event that Egypt were to attack. But nonetheless, he did this because of his fears. Now look with me, if you would, at the conduct that was manifested by Jeroboam in the long ago. Look at verse 26, if you would. In verse 26, Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom may return to the house of David. There was a fear that the northern kingdom would reconcile with the southern kingdom over which Rehoboam had been named king. And so, in verse 27, he said, If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn back to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and go back to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so he has fear that not only will he lose the kingdom, but that he would potentially lose his life. So as a result of that, he begins to introduce some innovations that were radical, to say the least. First of all, he changed the point of worship. Listen, if you would, to what the text says in verse 28. Therefore the king took counsel and made two calves of gold and said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Hear your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one up in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Bethel would have been to the south, Dan to the north, and as you look at what the text says, Jeroboam redirected the aim of Israel's worship. In other words, rather than the focal point being on God, it was on the golden calves. Now you think about the golden calves that were introduced while Moses was on the mountaintop. And here we have another introduction of idolatry to the people of God. I mention this because I think the relevance is that we're living in a day and time in which 
a lot of worship has become man-centered rather than God-centered. If it's man-centered, then it would be idolatrous, wouldn't it? Now, Jesus had said in his defense before the devil in Matthew chapter 4, that we are to worship the Lord our God and Him only are we to serve. In John chapter 4 verse 24, Jesus said, God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. Again, the focal point, the aim of our worship is Almighty God. I mention this because we live in a day and time in which there are a lot of churches in the world today and even some among us that are interested in drawing vast numbers of people. And listen, we all want great numbers. We're all interested in, in numbers because numbers represent people, but not at the expense of divine truth. I came across an article by Bob Pritchard. Listen, if you would, to what he says about the reshaping of modern worship. He said, in our entertainment-oriented culture. Many churches find themselves trying to outdo themselves with more and more elaborate additions to worship. He said, what began as special music by a choir becomes a full orchestra with professional soloist. A dramatic reading necessitates a full Broadway stage production. And as long as those who come to worship enjoy what is offered, anything goes. The expectation is that sermons will be shorter, wittier, and more uplifting. Anything in worship that cannot be jazzed up must be abandoned as boring. And there's nothing worse than being, bore, than being boring, we are led to believe. He goes on to say, the problem with this entertainment orientation is that the very object of worship is forgotten. God is the audience in worship. Jesus told the Samaritan woman that ignorant worship was unacceptable to God, even though it may have been sincere or enjoyable. God is spirit. They that worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth, John 4, 24. To worship God in spirit and truth means that worship must be from the heart, not just outward acts, and that it must be done in exact obedience to God's commands. The worship must be directed to Him, not to the whims of the worshipers. And then he says this, God's regulations for worship, as set out in the New Testament, are neither boring nor out of date. They are God-centered, while entertainment is man-centered. And then there's another article that I came across that was written by Gary E. Gilly. He is associated with a church in Illinois. And the title of the article, The Market Driven Church, a look behind the scenes. And I think really, when you think about this cultural problem that we have today, he hits the nail on the head. He said, the gospel is not bringing people to Christ in order to meet their felt needs. According to Scripture, the gospel is the good news that lost sinners can be forgiven of their sins and receive the righteousness of Christ 
in exchange. This fellow is from a denominational church, but he goes on to say this is the real need of humanity, the need for which Christ died. The new paradigm church would have no problem agreeing that Harry's true need is salvation from sin. But they do not believe that Harry will respond to such a gospel unless we dress it up with other enticing offers. Felt needs is the porthole, they believe, through which Harry is reached in order that his true spiritual need is met. According to their marketing research, Harry is not interested in truth, not interested in the future. Therefore, reaching him through concern for his eternal destiny is futile. What Harry is interested in is feeling better about himself. He's asking, what can help me deal with my pain? He's interested in his marriage, his friendship, his career, his recovery from past pain, and so on. And then he says, unchurched Mary, for her part, is attracted to churches where women have access to leadership and influence. He says, if we are to reach this generation, we must then market the gospel as something that works relieves pain and provides happiness. The most effective message for seekers are those that address their felt needs. He said, however, this approach is not drawn from Scripture. It is drawn from market research and the latest pop psychology. No one denies that there are many benefits to the Christian life, but these benefits must not be confused with the gospel. The bottom line is the gospel is God's power to salvation. And the way to attract people is with what? Divine truth. God's word. You can't out bell and whistle churches all over America, or the globe for that matter. And I think about the church of Christ, and when I use the term church of Christ, I'm not using that in a denominational sense. I'm talking about the church that belongs to Christ, that is the church that he bought and purchased with his blood, as Paul talks about in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. The church of Christ, that is the church that belongs to Christ, has something to offer the world. That something is divine truth. Because Jesus said, the truth shall make you free. Now, are we interested in the needs of other people, their physical and emotional well-being, yes. But ultimately, what is paramount, the needs of Jesus, or rather the needs of the human soul. And the only thing that can accomplish that is the gospel of Christ. Now, not only did Jeroboam change the point of worship, he changed the place of worship. I mentioned a moment ago, he set two golden calves up, one in Dan, the other in Bethel. Where was the temple located? In Jerusalem. According to Moses in Exodus chapter 23, verses 14 through 19, God commanded that the men, that is the Israelite men, were to go to the city of Jerusalem three times a year. Now, in a moment we're going to talk about how he changed the primary feast day of worship. But he changed the place of worship. And then he changed the priesthood in the worship. Verse 30, the writer says, Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan, 
And then he said he made shrines on the high places and made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Let's just talk about for a minute the change of the priesthood. In Deuteronomy chapter 10 at verse 8, God had set apart the tribe of Levi to bear the Ark of the Covenant when God separated that tribe. That meant exclusively the Levites were to function in that capacity. Well, Jeroboam, the Bible says that he made priests from the rank and file of the people. Listen, if you would, again to what is said. He made shrines on the high places, made priests from every class of people who were not of the sons of Levi. Now, not every Levite was a priest, but every priest was to be a Levite. Now we think about changing something as dramatic as that. And somebody says, well, that's just a little thing. Well, not when you talk about the commands of God. God said he wanted the Levites to bear the Ark of the Covenant. When God said that he wanted the Levites to do, to do that, that would have excluded all the other tribes, wouldn't it? He didn't have to talk about the other 11 tribes. Well, I mention that because there are some today that are introducing instrumental music into worship. Now, I know that there are a lot of denominations that use instruments of music in worship. For many years, that has been foreign to those that belong to the body of Christ or the church of Christ. I read recently of a congregation in the Nashville area, and the name of the congregation is not important, but what they say is important. One of the elders stood before the church, and it is a large, large congregation in the Nashville area. And by the way, there are at least three congregations in that area that are now using instruments of music in their worship. All three congregations, very large, very affluent. And so, here's what this elder has said. As you know, the elders have been engaged in a lengthy period of prayer and discussion about the future of this congregation. He said they began extensive conversations in October of 2014, meeting on numerous Sunday afternoons and Wednesday nights. And they were talking about their future. And so he says, we are concerned about our young people in and outside this church. Across America, we see a younger generation that is increasingly estranged from the Lord and from organized religion of all kind. And I would agree with that. Perhaps for centuries, older, older people have had concerns over this younger generation. But it is no longer a cliche. It is the truth. The generations under 40 are increasingly becoming unchurched. He said, growing out of this desire to be a welcoming church and to reach those we are currently not reaching, we are launching a third worship service on Sunday mornings in August. This assembly will take place in the youth center, in the youth center. And he says, that servant, that service will be instrumental in tone and feel 
The service will be more informal. Now I want to read you this, and I think this is really, really, really important as we try to put all this into perspective. He said, as leaders, we are united in believing that this decision is the right one for this church at this time. We've talked about this decision for months and submitted to prayer and fasting. And then I want you to listen to this. Now you think about Jeroboam. Jeroboam changed the point of worship. He changed the place of worship. He changed the priesthood of worship. He was an innovator. So here's what they say. Many of you have asked for a service like this for years. Did you hear that? Many of you, that is, the members of this congregation, have asked for an instrumental service for years. So if that's what they want, what do you do? You give it to them. Do you remember the children of Israel back in 1 Samuel chapter 8 when they asked God for a king? Why did they, why did they do that? so that they might be like all the nations around them. So here's what he goes on to say. And then many of us have witnessed with joy the way our own young people are moved by instrumental worship. Now they've been dabbling in this for a while. But is that the criterion that we're to go by? By how we feel and how it makes others feel? And by what the people want, are we to take a poll and say, you know what, if that's what the people want, then that's, that's what we've got to do. We want to be sure that you hear our heart on this matter. Ultimately, we came to believe that if we were serious about evangelism, we needed to remove an unintended barrier to such evangelism. Now listen to this. Our worship tradition. When we talk about our worship to God, is it a tradition? Yes. But it is a tradition that is rooted in Scripture. There is a difference between man-made tradition and God's tradition. Let me give you a passage of Scripture. I want you to turn with me very quickly to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Listen, if you would, to what Paul says in verse 15. Some would have you to believe that this idea of not using an instrument is just a part of, quote, unquote, our tradition. Well, that's not true. This tradition dates back to the first century. As a matter of fact, historians will tell you. You can go back and read the records. The instrument was not a part of New Testament worship in the first century. As a matter of fact, it wasn't even a part of worship until about the sixth century, about 606 or so. So in verse 15, here's what Paul said. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught. Okay, what kind of traditions were you taught? Whether by word or our epistle. Did Paul speak on behalf of Almighty God? You know he did because in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 37, he said the things that we write to you are the commandments of the Lord. 
So when he talks about these traditions, these traditions are rooted in Scripture. In other words, they are rooted in what God says. Let me read on. Many of us dearly love a cappella praise, and we always will. But there's a world out there that does not connect to it. It's not their heart language. We want to reach these people. We at least want to try to reach these people. I want to ask you a question. Does the end justify the means? I mean, is that, is that, what, is that what God says? You find out what will work, what will attract people, how you can somehow get into the hearts and minds of people. You use that, you get them in the door, and then you teach them the gospel. Is that what the Bible says? By the way, I haven't seen one single scripture in reading this. Not a one. I've heard about what the people want and what obviously makes people feel good and what they think might be attractive to people. But I haven't heard anything about what God says. Don't you think we need to consult what God says when we talk about worshiping Him? After all, it's the blood-bought body of Christ, isn't it? If Jesus built the church, if He bought it with His blood, then whose church is it? It's His church. If it's His church, does He not have the right, the authority, to run it as He sees fit? You see, the problem is we've got some people just like Jeroboam. And I don't mean this in an unkind, arrogant way. They're rebels. The idea of following a New Testament pattern is repulsive to them. A lot of folks. Look, if you want to change the church... Go start your own. Leave the Lord's church alone. That, that's what some people need to hear in our brotherhood. Do you realize how many congregations, I'm talking about congregations that were built. When I talk about congregations, I'm talking about the facilities that have been built by faithful brethren. Do you realize how many congregations that were built, paid for, by hardworking, honest, trustworthy brethren, people that believed in Scripture, that have been taken over. And, in, and for all intents and purposes, the bottom line is we've lost them. This congregation that I'm talking about, when I was a student at Lipscomb, I attended there some. It was a solid church. Not anymore. That's just one church that I can recall attending when I was a student that today I could not attend. And you know why? Because they don't follow the New Testament. He said, I grew up believing, as many of you did, that the only proper and pleasing way to worship God was a cappella. This is about the only way I've worshipped for my 61 years. I'm comfortable in our worship tradition. I enjoy our a cappella heritage. But now he cites 1 Corinthians chapter 9, first scripture. And he talks about how Paul has become all things to all people so that by all possible means he might save some. Contextually, you can't talk about 
the fundamental tenets of the New Testament and make this verse fly. You don't change the doctrine of Christ to reach people. I read this because when I look at 1 Kings chapter 12, I'm reminded of how things really don't change. People don't change. There are other things that I could read, but we'll move on. But I want you to think about that for just a minute. Think about congregations of God's people that in days gone by love the Scriptures, believe the Scriptures, and practice them, and today have abandoned them. It's a frightening thought. So Jeroboam changed the point of worship, the place of worship, the priesthood in worship, and let me just add this very quickly. I talk about the introduction of the instrument in some of these congregations. One of the congregations now has employed women in a visible role in the worship of the church. And yet Paul said, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over the man. What Paul is saying there is that it's not about ability, it's about authority. Everything we're talking about has to do with authority. And then he changed the primary feast day of worship. He introduced a new feast day. Look at verse, look if you would at verse 32. Jeroboam ordained a feast on the 15th day of the 8th month, like the feast that was in Judah. The feast he's talking about is the Feast of Tabernacles where the Israelites were to dwell in booths or tents for seven days, reminding them of their wandering in the wilderness. He introduces this new feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. They were to observe this feast in the seventh month. Did you know that there are some folks that, in an effort to accommodate people, have introduced a Saturday evening worship service. You can come and take the Lord's Supper and get church out of the way, get worship out of the way. Can we worship God seven days a week? Yes, we can. However, two acts of worship are exclusive to a very specific day in the week. You know what those acts are? The Lord's Supper and giving of our means. We only do those on Sunday. We don't have the right to introduce a Thursday night service, a Friday night service, or a Saturday night service and offer the Lord's Supper, as some would have us to think. So there's a correlation here. When you talk about the radical innovations of King Jeroboam, what I'm talking about, unfortunately, has become problematic in the church, the Church of Christ. Very quickly, the core move of Jeroboam. What, what was it that prompted all of this? What was behind it? Look at verse 23. He made offerings. Jeroboam makes offerings on the altar which he had made at Bethel. He had no right to do that. On the 15th day of the 8th month in the month which he had devised, listen to him, in his own heart. 
He ordained a feast for the children of Israel and offered sacrifices on the altar, on the altar and burned incense. It all originated or stemmed from one place. You know where it was? His heart. Is the heart to be the guide in matters of faith and religion? Remember what Solomon said? There's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. I would encourage you to go back over the next few days. Read Deuteronomy chapter 4 where God said to Moses, You're not to add to my word, nor are you to, to diminish aught from it. Why? That you may keep the commandments that I command you. Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 2. In Proverbs chapter 30 verse 6, the Bible says that we're not to add to his word lest he reprove us and we be found a liar. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 15, the Bible tells us we're not to go beyond what is written. In Revelation chapter 22, 19, 18 and 19, the Apostle John talks about how we are not to add to nor take from God's holy word. Now contextually, he's talking about the book of Revelation. But if you look at scriptures, overall, that theme runs throughout. So who has the final say in what we do? Is it up to me? Is it my call? Is it the elder's call? Is it the call of the deacons? Let me close by saying this. There's not an eldership on earth that has the authority to bring innovations into the church of Christ. There's not a preacher on earth that has that kind of authority. Here's what Jesus said, All authority, all power has been given unto me in heaven and on earth. The Lord Jesus Christ has all authority. And God the Father said, about his son, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And listen to him. He said, hear him. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul said, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. That means you do it by his authority. How are we going to be judged? By what we think in our heart? Jeroboam set these things up, devised them as a result of his own heart. Am I going to be judged on the basis of what I think, what I believe? I'll be judged on the basis of what I think, what I believe, but what's the standard? The opinions of men, what the majority says, is that how God's going to hold court on the last day? Let me tell you what he said. He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him. The words that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. The bottom line is God's going to open this book. And he's going to judge us. And I don't care if we're an elder, deacon, preacher, whatever. Charter member. We're going to give an account to Almighty God on the basis of what this book says. What we're talking about, dangerous stuff. There are churches of Christ. Please listen to me very carefully. There are churches of Christ that based on what they're teaching and practicing would do us a favor by taking the sign down. You understand what I'm saying? If you're not going to follow what the Bible teaches, then by all means, take the sign down. Take it down and rename it. But don't wear the name of Christ. Because it's not his church. 
If we don't practice what he teaches, and that's true here and anywhere, if we don't practice what this book teaches, we have no right to wear his name. That ought to be crystal clear to every person. Not about me, it's not about what I think, it's about what God says. And there are some folks today that are just like Jeroboam. And they want it their way. That seems to be the slogan of one of the hamburger places, isn't it? Have it your way. Listen, you can't have it your way when it comes to religion. It's have it God's way. That's what trumps everything. In closing, this is a hard lesson. But it's a needed lesson because there are a lot of folks that need to wake up. Folks in our brotherhood that need to come back to the scriptures. It hurts when you have family members that leave the truth. It hurts when you have friends that leave the truth. But you know what? They may leave, but I'm not going with them. And I would hope and pray you won't either. Whatever you're looking for, you can find it out in the world. Whatever you're looking for, you can find in the realm of religion. But here's the question. Are you looking for the truth? Because that's what matters. Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Tonight, if you're here and you're not a Christian, the Bible says that you need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, verse 24. The Bible says you have to repent of your sins, Luke 13, 3. That you need to confess the name of Christ, Matthew 10, verse 32. That you must be baptized into Christ so that all your sins can be washed away, Acts 2, verse 38. And you have to be faithful until death, Revelation 2, verse 10. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, we'd encourage you to come back, or rather come to Christ. If you're here tonight and you're not faithful, we would encourage you to come home. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Won't you come as we stand and sing?